Okay. Uh, okay. Excuse me one minute. Ah, okay. I got from the working class, from the people, a demand, request, whatever, to do a little bit of where we are spiritually today, Buddhism and sciences and so on. <coughs> like, are you, if I keep it elementary, of course, is this okay with you? If I mix it also with shitty poetry and so on, like haiku and so on, like science, brain sciences, Buddhism, haiku, that. Is this good enough for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, where is? I don't feel yes, I don't like yes. Conrad Stalin. Yes, don't leave Conrad. <laughs> okay, thanks. Let me go. Okay, let's see how I will go. It's nice that you mentioned the Dario Argento, you know, this as if excess, you know, because this is what I appreciate in Italian cinema in general. Once I gave an interview for Italian TV, you know, they asked me these disgusting narcissistic questions, like, uh, like uh, what is our great achievement? They wanted to be praised. But they got five them an answer they didn't expect. I said, I don't care, just don't mention me in all that, you know, Visconti and uh, Antonioni or what. I said, Italy contributed three things, Italian cinema to world culture, which are the real thing. Uh, spaghetti western, the sex comedies, I don't know if you remember them, from the 60s, and my favorite. They're so <coughs> incredible, what they call peplum, you know, those uh, bombastic but slightly ridiculous historical drama like Hercules, against these, or what, you know, this, and what I want to say is that, especially with these sex comedies, some of them were excellent. Because, although they were cheap commercial movies, this miracle often happened that sometimes a serious author, or probably for commercial reasons or whatever, uh, got involved in it. For example, I write somewhere about it. You know, there is a rare movie, it's difficult to get it. By a miracle, an Italian friend gave me an uh, uh, illegal copy from mid 70s, the golden era of these movies, sex comedies. Uh, Conviene far bene l'amore. It should, we should make love well. It's quite an incredible sex comedy at the level of like Monty Python, but it really works. It's pretty terrifying. I don't know if you know about it. It's a, and again, there was an intellectual behind it. It's serious. Because it's a ridiculous situation, but you can feel how it rings a bell with our situation. It takes place in near future, and the imagined situation is the following one. Uh, Western Europe or Italy, it doesn't matter, runs out of energy, and then some scientists, uh, pupil descendant of Wilhelm Reich discovers that during the sexual act a tremendous amount of energy is released on condition, now comes the joke of course, on condition that you are not in love when you do it. That love sabotages this. So then you can imagine how it goes on. Uh, they had a problem, but they convinced the church 
to turn around its position. So now it is sinful to love your wife, of course. And then, of course, you have this wonderful scenes of confession where the guy goes there and said, Oh, Father, what can I do? I'm not attracted promiscuously by other women. I just love my wife. It's horrible, my son. <laughs> Go around. You don't chase me horrible. You must punish. And then comes my favorite, like, uh, Stalinist moment. All married couples, now it's the energy part, is, are obliged, I think, twice a week to meet. Like, imagine here some, some I don't know, 20, 30 Zofas. They are obliged, and of course, to make love, but it's done, you know, in this serial industrial way. There is a controller there, a kind of a Stalinist, you know, who says, shouts, you, second table to the left there, move. What expression did you use for Hollywood that hoops or what? Uh, sorry? Humps. You, humps, faster, you know, and so on, <laughs> I kind of a, And I, I think that there is, a, there is a truth in it, you know, almost. In the sense that this is how, now you will say this is crazy, yes or, or no. Do you know that, again, fuck you now, some of you will tell me this is not true, but I really got information from quite many French psychoanalysts, not madmen like me, but like real psychoanalysts who deal with real people, who told me something pretty interesting that you know, in the old days, the simplistic idea, sometimes, but not always, it was not stupid, you find it even in Freud, the simplistic idea that, like, you come to a psychoanalyst because you want to, uh, as I already mentioned this, I think, on the further, you want to have sex, but you have internalized prohibitions, I don't know, so you go there to get rid of prohibitions so that you can finally do it. The, the job of the psychoanalyst is to free you from oppressive prohibitions so that you can fully enjoy it. It's only that today it's much more complicated. Today, literally, so I was told, the majority of patients, it's not that they have illicit desires and they feel sinful for them. No. You feel guilty if you are not able to enjoy it. Literally. Sexual enjoyment, performance, blah, blah, has an, in a bad sense, ethical status. Like, you are guilty if you cannot enjoy. Uh, and which is why, again, uh, the task, it, this makes very strange the task of uh, the analyst. It's no longer to set you free or whatever of obstacles to enjoy. No, the obstacle, the injunction <coughs> which you have to overcome is precisely the injunction to enjoy. The main task of the analyst today paradoxically is to convince you you don't have to enjoy. You can if you want but you don't have to. Enjoyment is not obligatory. And uh, uh, and it would be again uh, <coughs> very nice to detect in what ways enjoyment is presented as an obligation to the like once a friend here in Switzerland gave me I don't know why he probably wanted to kill me with my diabetes uh, a, a, a box with some chocolate uh, cakes whatever 
And I like something because they were so freshly made the idea is the moment you open them and you expose them to the air, they get ruined. So, and it's so nice, you open it and you get this special instruction, support genism. <laughs> you have to enjoy immediately. You know. It's something like this. So again, this, uh, so again the movie does, does, uh, does react, does react to this. Although, uh, okay, we could go on in this direction, but let's go on, nonetheless, where we stop more seriously. Okay, uh, you remember, I just want to bring things together. You remember, I mentioned that paradox of the Asiatic mode of production. That is to say, let's say, you have a universal field, a genus, subdivided in species or elements, we don't have to be precise here, whatever, and then there is one element which, although it appears to be an ordinary element, it is effectively a stand-in for what is excluded. It really is, I told you, imagine the set of dogs, you have this dog, that dog, and then you have an element, all dogs, which are not part of this classification or whatever, no? You know who? developed this in a wonderful way for social analysis. I think I mentioned him here, maybe not. The guy who was in conflict with Gandhi in India, called Dr. I don't know what the other names are, he's known simply as Ambedkar in India. And he's even now not well-known presence there. Because he was the big opponent of Gandhi. But he was an opponent from precisely a more radical democratic position. His claim was that the greatest tragedy of India was already in around year zero, a little bit earlier, the defeat of Buddhism. You know, that the Buddhist uh, movement was overwhelmed, basically uh, old Veda Hinduism made a uh, made a triumphant return, you know, and recaptured the field by totally restructuring itself and so on and so on. So this guy, Ambedkar, openly called for India, Indians to get rid of the entire Hindu tradition, castes, and so on and so on. And then he used a wonderful play works in politics with Gandhi, who nonetheless defended a soft system of caste. He said, like, no castes without outcasts, you know, that was his formula. The point is not the empirical one, you know, that's the point. It's not okay, no classification is perfect, you always lose some minority. It's a much stronger structural one, that every classificatory system is based on an exclusion. And you have to have, this is the meaning of, you mentioned the chapter in my book, the term Suture, you know, suture. It's suture. Suture is precisely that element which apparently fixes it all into a harmonious whole by inscribing within the system its constitutive exclusion. You know, you must an element have an element within which stands for what is without. This, uh, as it were, this. Uh, this empty element, now we are coming to Lacan, this empty element, in the sense that it doesn't mean anything, it's just, 
is just a, a negation positivized. And here we are at the zero level of dialectics. What do I mean by this? Another old story to tell, I hope it's not known to you. Remind me, I'm getting old, senile, blah, blah. Did I already use here the joke from Ernst Lubitsch, Ninochka? I think I did. Be honest. No. Are you sure? No. Uh, yes, no, no, yes. Okay, we're not going to. No, the one, the one about, uh, the one about uh, coffee with coffee with cream. No. no. Uh, okay. No, because this is dialectics at its minimum. I claim it's a wonderful, simple joke, so that we learn through cinema a little bit of Hegel. This is, I think. Ah, you know, I'm proud of something. If you want, uh, I will give it to you. You know, I did write a text supporting those. Uh, I'm really proud of this. Maybe I did a small things, which is not just bad taste. Yesterday evening, I wrote a page and a half on support of those poor girls, Pussy Riot. Pussy Riot, you know, no? And it's, I have friends there who inform me. It's really horrible. Yeah. Okay, they made, even if you are conservative, a small joke there in a church, you know, my God, they're already for months in prison, now they prolonged it uh, to, to half a year, they're keeping them, it's a kind of a Stalinist nightmare, you know. And okay, I wrote a text, short, and they even smuggled the text through a lawyer to them, oh, I'm so glad, <laughs> they are uh, grateful to me, but the text is pretty rough on Putin and the gang. So since next week I'm going to Russia, they are now afraid, no? My God, you see, this is order, political, no? They told me that they proposed me to have it published once I am in Russia. Because they told me, since I'm a foreigner, relatively known, the worst that can happen is that they throw me out. They will not arrest me. But they told me it may well happen, it already did, that if it's published tomorrow, before, on the net and so on, that they will not allow me to enter. My God, I didn't know things are so serious there. No? My uh, association was because there I used also this joke. Namely, the joke is the following one. It's from Ninochka, uh, Ernst Lubitsch, of course, who but he. No? Uh, in... Uh, uh, in Ninochka, there is, a, I'm not talking about the whole story, you know, the story, Greta Garbo, the last big role, uh, but uh, it's a, just a small scene about coffee, where she, no, sorry, the hero, just nothing driven with the story, enters a cafeteria and asks, can I get coffee without cream, please? Just coffee without cream. And again, the Hegelian waiter provides a wonderful answer. He says, sorry. We run out of cream, we only have milk, so can I get you coffee without milk, you know? <laughs> He's totally correct, this is dialectics, in the sense that what is not there, this, in, when I was young, in the great era of structuralism, we called this uh, absence in the mode of presence, or in Hegelian terms, but it's this wonderful idea that uh, what you are not, is, is part of your identity. You are not just what you are. You are what you are not. And this is how symbolic space works. 
What do we mean by this? Let me give you an easy, everyday example. You are silent, you do nothing. But you know, if you are silent just like that, it's totally different than being silent in a situation where, imagine a totalitarian regime like Stalinism. I remember when they had some dissident, but this was really not a true Stalinism. No? Uh, like, I remember when Pasternak, uh, I don't exactly remember, I was too young for that, but I remember reading about it, when in 58 or when Pasternak got Nobel Prize and he was, there was of course a public, uh, a public campaign against him by Soviet authorities, and they uh, put pressure on all other, especially writers, artists, to sign a petition condemning Pasternak as becoming slave of imperialism, Blah blah blah, and uh, at that point, to do nothing was the act. You know, there are situations where to do nothing is almost the most you can do it. So again, going back to here, uh, uh, going back to my point, uh, what can we learn from this about how ideology works? Again, it's the basic structural rule. You know what I mean by structural rule? Differentiality. Where you are, as Ferdinand de Saussure, the father of structural linguistics, identified the uh, differential order where what you are is just a bundle of differences. No, Your identity is only you are not this, you are not that, and so on and so on. Uh, you, you must know which is the best known line from all Sherlock Collins, which is the beautiful leader. You must know it. It's from his story, Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Silver Blaze, where Sherlock Collins asked the stupid Lestrade or who, police detective, no, or it's, uh, no, it's the other way uh, uh, around. Uh, uh, like, the question is, did you notice uh, any, uh, 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 yes, yeah, sorry, no, Sherlock Collins says, did you notice the curious incident by the dog the last night? And the other guy says, the dog did nothing. And Sherlock Holmes says, but this is the curious incident, and so on. No? Why? So, again, uh, what I mean by this differentiality? What I mean is that this mechanism where you do something, or you have something, but this something, even if it is materially the same, it matters what is it not. Like, in this case, okay, from a common sense view, you can say, what does it, I know, that's why this was a joke, what I quoted to you, you know, that you can say, fuck you, I mean, coffee is coffee. It's obvious that the customer wants a plain coffee. It doesn't matter if it's defined as without milk or without cream. But in semiotic space, it does matter. It's absolutely crucial. Uh, this is, I even think, more and more how ideology works today. It works more at the level of these, let's call them, implications, you know. Already there was, in communism, again it's from Poland, I think, a wonderful joke which has exactly the same structure. I remember it from my youth. The presupposition of this joke is that often under communism in stores, elementary, consumerist items were missing, you know, like butter, like, I don't know, electric cables, no? 
So the point is, a guy goes to a store and says, did you already get butter or is it still that you don't have butter? And uh, the, the seller there answers him, sorry, you are in wrong store. We are the store which doesn't have electricity cables. Across the street is the store which doesn't have butter, you know. Like, it's totally correct logic. Immediately I go on, yeah, yeah. My God, you're going on like this? Uh, uh, do you plan to change your name to Spartak or what? Like, the slave speaks a lot of the message, but stays quiet. And then? Like, in, for example, today, you get yeah. place the slave speaks and the message. Yeah, speaks. but the slaves should speak with, with deeper respect. Oh, <laughs> oh, dear master, can I say something? I know it's insulting for you, but can you, master, show the infinite mercy? Sorry, let me cut this bullshit, please. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was just wondering if using this coffee without cream structure, doesn't it also elucidate something about the idea of organs without body, insofar as Malakanda defines the big other, I think in yeah, one yeah. of the later centers, says precisely something that doesn't exist but has a body, right in opposition to the lamella. Yeah, 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 he says that's crucial, lamella doesn't exist. Exactly, but, and the, the big other is, has, doesn't exist but has a body. I think he says it in seven years. a body, seven. okay. Uh, in that sense, I'm sorry, it should be the caffeinated coffee. That's what he means. That no, would be no, 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 it's more precise. You know, you You asked a very good question. Because, you know, the problem here, let me go quickly through it, is the following one. And Lacan was struggling for a long time with it. What do we mean by the big other doesn't exist? From the very beginning, Lacan, in a way, knew that the big other doesn't exist in the sense that it's a purely virtual symbolic structure. The big other is a purely virtual order. It only exists insofar as, paradoxically, we believe that it exists. No? Like, although it's an ideal order of meaning, but if you kill all real people, it wouldn't exist as this virtuality. Yeah. No? So, uh, but later, like when he radicalizes into il n'y a pas de grand or because you know ah uh, we'll catch you ah you poor slave learn a little bit more you know I'm sorry that's my nature you know that story about Scorpio who beats a frog although he knows that uh, he will also drown that's me uh, be very careful as far as I know mostly at least the late Lacan he doesn't say uh, just the big other doesn't exist he says, il n'y a pas, there is no big other. And as every, as we know, the theological Lacanians know, it's not the same. Doesn't exist means, but it still insists in its symbolic, you know. But il n'y a pas, there is no big other, it means something much more radical, that it's it thwarted, non-functional, even as non-existing. Even as, the symbol, even as the symbolic order. Because why is this important? Because as Lacan makes it clearer and clearer, and this should be of some interest to you also, without maybe this theological interest, uh, because this is also where Lacan shifts his position with regard to atheism. You know, maybe already improvised about this, I'm not sure. Uh, early Lacan made the standard formula. 
the formula of stick, did stick to standard formula of atheism, God doesn't exist. No? But then, maybe here it's an influence of Nietzsche, you know, because Nietzsche was here, I think it was very wise in being aware how this standard idealist humanist death of God is the worst, in a way, the most disgusting mode of surviving God. You, you know, this humanist version, God doesn't exist, God is just the best of what is in us, the ideal humanity. Okay, you have a God who doesn't exist, but who still screws, screws your life totally. He is still here as this inexistent ideal order, no? And Nietzsche was well aware that, in this sense, it's not enough to make this move from that a God who is a dead God still exists precisely as a virtual symbolic order. This is the humanist position. We don't need God as a real God. The old guy sitting up there, but God as an ideal order is still here. When is this important? For example, sorry for bothering you with this old bullshit, but the whole Stalinism is based on this. Of course, Stalinism is atheist in the sense of there is no transcendent God. But if you understand God as Lacanian non-existing big other, that is to say, as an ideal symbolic network which guarantees the meaning of your acts, then God does exist. This is the only way to account for, uh, for example, the most mysterious Stalinist category, the one of objective responsibility. The idea is, even if you are personally a good guy and you meant it well, objectively, in the eyes of history, you are responsible. That is to say, you act as if history is not just a chaotic collective process, but there is some kind of ideal order to which you can refer and which, as it were, determines the meaning of the acts. And the idea is that we communists have direct access to that big other. Isn't that history without God? Isn't that uh, Stalinist? Like, yeah, but, but a dead God who is still there. Yeah, yes, without God, and that's for the precise sense Only as a dead God, yes. Yeah, sure, but yeah, but this is not enough. And again, this is, I will not bore you with this, but this is my eternal problem with Christianity. The standard reading of Christianity is that it's precisely this. Okay, God dies, the old idiot. They, my friends who don't follow me here, and now I will make to you an intimate confession. My two best friends, the other two members of our communist troika, the three, Blan and Dolar and Talenka Subhanchik, you know, they, and why are you smile in such an evil way? You agree with them here, traitor. I'm sorry, no. What I'm saying is that they also think that Hegel and Christianity here, the same, are not yet truly materialists, that they are at this level. For Hegel, for example, Hegel even proposed this wonderful formula. You know that what dies on the cross is not just in Christianity. It's not just a messenger of God. It's not just, you know, God sent his son, things went wrong, okay, the son dies, God says, okay, my boy, come back, we will try again, maybe thousand, no, that. What dies on the cross is the very God of beyond. But the trick is this one. 
God as real living God dies, but he survives as the precisely Hegelian ideal order, as the very immanent symbolic structure. Or to put it in Christian terms, God dies, but Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit is here. And Holy Spirit is just what? It's no longer God up there. Here, my friends accept my Christian, my materialist reading of Christianity, where I claim that the whole topic of second coming and so on, no, uh, reincarnation, it's, if you are a radical Christian, it's wrong. Remember, when uh, followers ask Christ, how will you know that you will come back, blah, blah. Christ gives a beautiful answer. He says, when there are love between two of you, I am there. So it means, let's not fall into vulgar reading of Christianity. It's not that something special will happen, Christ. No, Christ is already here when we love each other. So, but okay, they, my friends, no, they claim that precisely this is not enough. That Holy, and even Lacan seems to support them, because at least in his early seminars, I think already in seminar two and then in seven, maybe even more, he says explicitly that the Holy Spirit is the Christian name for the big other. For this, you know, like, and, uh, what I try to prove, what I'm struggling with in my book, that the monstrosity of Christ, the dialogue with that weird fellow traveler John Milbank, no? uh, the, the, the so-called uh, radical orthodoxy guy, uh, is that precisely it's not just this in Christianity. It's a more radical death. What do I mean by this? We should, let's return to Lacan. Uh, Lacan doesn't, later, Lacan doesn't only, okay, for Lacan, the formula of atheism goes, God is dead, this is the Lacan who still believes in the big other, as it were. But then, the moment Lacan got it that the big other is inconsistent, barred, and so on, he changed his formula of atheism. No, his formula of atheism is then not God doesn't exist, but as maybe some of you know, God is unconscious. That's his Late. And what does he mean by this? Well, I will not be long here, don't be afraid, because I already mentioned this. Uh, God is unconscious means simply that we believe in God, that even if you are officially atheist, you know all the examples I was giving you about how, even if you don't believe, you get a naive guy who believes for you, or the structure of objective belief is there. Which is why I will not bore you, but... This is, I think, one of the things that are not totally stupid, which I develop, one of the few things I'm relatively proud of, to reread in this way, I'm sorry if you know already this line, I hope I didn't already talk too much about it here, that Marxist notion of commodity fetishism. You should be very careful there what Marx is saying, which is why I think it's fully worth rereading. This is the best of Marx. Marx is not the stupid humanist who says, uh, his fetishism is not, we are stupid, we treat, we should have known that money is just an embodiment of social relations, but we treat money as a fetish, as something magic, and so on and so on. It's much more complex. The point of Marx, again, is not that fetishism is not we 
subjects caught in bourgeois order don't see how things really are. No, to be brutal, things themselves don't see it. Or, to put it in a different way, uh, you remember the big Marxist formula of fetishism, sorry, of ideology, which is from capital. Sie wissen das nicht, aber sie tun es. They don't know what they are doing, but they are doing it. Ah, what does this mean? Read it closely. It's not just the common stupidity of they don't know what they are doing. In the sense of, you know, they are doing something, but they have a wrong idea about what they are doing. No, no, no. Marx is saying something much more ingenious, which is, in reality, in their social activity, in their doing, they are following illusions. But they don't know what illusions they are following. They don't know what in their activity they believe. And this is, for example, when Marx mentions commo uh, commodity fetishism and he even talks, this is Marx at his best, look at that if you want to read a beautiful text, that appendix to the first, to, it's in the second edition Marx put it together, to the first chapter of Capital on commodity fetishism. The first phrase there, the beginning, you know, which says, uh, uh, commodity appears something like this. At the first sight, a very simple thing, a commodity, just an object. But analysis, closer analysis, brings out a whole, I don't know, dimension of theological nicety. Are you aware what Marx is saying here? Exactly the opposite of the usual materialist criticism. Because the usual critique, like the critique of religion, would have been, commodity appears something mystical, obscure, or religion, but we as materialists should demonstrate how this mystical effect is the result of alienation of our real life process, you know, the, uh, blah, blah, blah. Marx is saying almost the exact opposite. Marx is not saying, again, you are a stupid guy who believes in a fetish, but in reality there is no fetish, just actual social activity. No, Marx says, in your everyday life, you believe these are just simple objects. The theological dimension, which Marx is a Lacanian there, the theological dimension of commodity fetishism is unconscious. The point of Marx is this one. When you say, but there is nothing mystical about money. Money is just a sign which gives you a right to the part of the social product. Money is about people working together, blah, blah. Marx is fully aware that this is the everyday view of a normal bourgeois subject. What Marx claims is that one, when, the moment you are active on market, buying, selling, and so on, you are not following this. You are acting as if you believe. The belief, the erroneous fetishist belief, is in your acting. And if I may now, I will do something horrible now, for which I apologize in advance. I will repeat a joke which I used in my writings, not in talks, in my writings, I would say about 10 to 15 times, you know. But I do it because, again, I will reread it through Alenka Zubancic, who reused it. You know, I'm now I'm ashamed, but you know that eternal joke, maybe I already mentioned it here, even of, you know, I love these stupid jokes about psychiatrists, you know. They can be extremely materialist, beautiful one. Like, uh, 
For example, this is not the one that I want to use. Do not that joke about the crocodile. <coughs> a patient goes to an analyst and complains, <coughs> I have this obsession, vision, that there is a crocodile beneath my bed. No? And the analyst said, oh, this must be some unconscious complex traumas haunting you. Let's talk about your father, mother, and so on. Horrible, no? So, okay, he's in analysis for months, and at the end, he's convinced, okay, there is no crocodile, it was my traumatic hallucination. The guy goes home. It's over. And then, uh, a month later, the same psychiatrist meets the, a friend of this guy and says, what happened with that guy? You know, the one who was, in, you know what the French answer? And didn't you hear about the tragedy? You mean the guy who was eaten by a crocodile? <laughs> 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 this is materialism. Very correct joke. But okay, the one, unfortunately, it's even better, it's even better known, is the one, uh, uh, ah, you know, which is my favorite joke here. If you were, this is, should be ultimate, this Hump's joke or whatever. You must know it. It's just an obscenity. It has to do something with theory, with drive. If you want to understand the notion of drive, you should follow this one. Maybe you know it. You know, another great contribution of United States, apart from the world culture, apart from, uh, how is it called? Apart from uh, Kent laughter and jokes about doctors, good, good news, bad news, are jokes about idiots. You know, the seed is an, an experienced woman introduces an idiot for the first time to sex. And how things go wrong, and this is for me the absolutely ideal one. Okay, a guy is introduced to sex by a woman. They undress, she shows him her organs, masturbates him, she tells him this is now erection, no? And then teaches him how he entered her, and then she said, okay, now you move your hands, now in, out, in, out, and you can guess what happens. After half a minute, the idiot says, can't you finally make up your mind? Is it in or out? You know? <laughs> Again, why do I say drive? Because the whole point of drive is that precisely the circulation of drive, the movement itself is the goal, you know? The guy didn't get it, you know. So, okay, but now let's take, I'm postponing the moment of the real joke because it's so well known that I'm embarrassed, but it has better versions. Namely, it's that joke, you know, about a guy who thought he's a, a, a grain of corn and you know the story, you know, and he's finally cured, left out of psychiatric asylum, then he returns and uh, psychiatrists ask him, what's the point? What went wrong? Is it when I met a chicken who threatened to eat me? No? And then the uh, guy, uh, psychiatrist says, but you know now that you are a man, not a piece of grain, and you know, uh, okay. He says, I know this, but does the chicken know that I am now a man? No? Uh, this joke, naive as it may appear, is how fetishism is structured. It doesn't matter if we know it. It matters if, as it were, the big other knows it. Of course, the big other doesn't exist, which means if we believe that the big other is still here to know it or not. Alenka Zupancic, I quote her in my Parallax book here, I think, did a wonderful version apropos atheism. She paraphrased the same joke in this sense. Imagine a kind of a my ideal country, a kind of a 
Brook Jacobin atheist dictatorship, Republican, where if you believe you are treated as deviationist, you have to be cured. And then it's the same thing. A guy is, uh, is subjected, a believer, to this treatment, and finally he is cured, okay, God doesn't exist, and so on and so on. So he is left out, but comes running back fast, no? And the, there, that ideologist, whatever, asked him, what's the problem? He said, I feel, I feel haunted, threatened by God, no? And then, again, you can imagine what happened. No, Dr. Oskin, but you know that God doesn't exist. And he says, yes, but does God know that he now doesn't exist, and so on. It's a totally, uh, it's a totally correct structure, and I will give you a couple of further examples to see the, in the, in the same sense for Marx, we know that there is no commodity fetishism, but commodities themselves don't know it. And which is why read that chapter on commodity fetishism. In order to explain commodity fetishism, Marx literally says, imagine one commodity talking to another commodity. And then you get the fetishist formula of fetishist reversal. So Marx literally got this. That, uh, why is this so interesting, for this structure? Uh, uh, because uh, when I read, I think Daniel Dennett, I think in his Consciousness Explained, which is a nice intelligent book, but nonetheless I claim it doesn't do precisely what it promises to do. It does not. It's not good enough. But nonetheless, he criticizing naivety or whatever, he, he, that is to say, uh, Bennett, uh, accuses the opponents of his position that they distinguish in a nonsensical way two positions. How things appear to us and how things really appear. You know, an apparent nonsense of redoubling appearance. Think that we do not have simply the distinction between how things really are and how they appear to us. But how things really are, how they really appear, and how they wrongly appear to us. But this, this is precisely Marx's formula. Commodity fetishism is how things really objectively appear. And why is this so important? Because, and we should here go to the end in drawing this paradox. We can imagine the situation where things are in a certain way, really, and you know how they are, but you are still wrong, because you don't know how they really appear. You know, which is why, for example, and that's the whole point of Marx's analysis of commodity fetishism. If you are a rational subject who says, what's the mystery? We live in a social world, there is nothing magic in money, money is just uh, 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 an object which, according to our common agreement, gives the one who owns it the right to a part of social product and so on. Of course, we all know this, and it is like this, but we don't know that in our social life they don't appear like this. You know, this wonderful notion of objective appearance. And this is, I think, the best definition maybe of uh, 
the best definition maybe of the Freudian notion of fantasy. Fantasy is not subjective. Fantasy is not how things appear to you. No, fantasy is, as a rule, even too intense, too crazy to be subjectively assumed. Fantasy is how things is fantasy is how things really appear. Which is why this maybe would have been one of the intelligent psychoanalytic answers to uh, to the primitive, they are not all primitive, brain sciences, namely, uh, uh, let's put it like this. I had a debate with brain scientists at Duke University and it was very nice to talk it about. Namely, the f uh, they told me, you know, the usual story, like this usual brain science is uh, 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 pessimist reductionism to shock you. They told me, uh, you may think that when you are in love, something sublime is happening, but we can uh, show you easily how it's all just about some neuronal excitations, etc., etc. Like, it's no big deal, it's just a stupid biochemical process, no? But to this, if you are a believer in love, to this, you can still answer convincingly by simply saying, fuck you, I don't care. You can have your objective truth, but I still, you cannot take from me like, I am, sorry, I will not, not to be per prosecuted for harassment, I will not look at anyone. I will just say, like, okay, okay like, okay, I passionately, fanatically desire you, and you can tell me, okay, I don't care, you can take the intensity of the feeling from me, no? A psychoanalyst, yes, can take precisely this from you, I claim. Because he does not claim that it's, uh, the unconscious is not an objective process. The Freudian unconscious is not this, which is not even unconscious. It's not this, how should I call it, uh, uh, simply objective natural process, in the stupid sense in which neurons are unconscious, because they are not aware. Of, no, unconscious is precisely, it's still a subjective state a fantasy, whatever, but disobjectivized, you know, this wonderful idea of, not of reality inaccessible to me, that's standard stupid ontology, which is, we can, we perceive only phenomena, there is some transcendent reality, no, reality is easily acceptable, accessible to us through sciences and so on. Phenomena, that, there are radical phenomena which are not accessible to us. And this is uh, Lacan's... So again, I didn't lose the, 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 the trade. My point would have been... My point would have been that the truly radical act is not for you or me not to believe. That's easy. But to kill the chicken or <laughs> to, to, to convince the chicken not to believe. And this can be an extremely depressive thing. You remember, I told you about uh, Benigni, no? The, you remember, this I remember, that's already said, the ultimate version of a life is beautiful where he learns that the child never believed in it, knew it. This would be kind of a, the chicken itself stopped, stopped to believe. Or, you know, which is another story which has a nice moment like this. 
I must confess, I haven't read the novel. I, I, well, I don't like Scorsese so much. I, it's Scorsese's movie that I've seen. Do you remember? Uh, 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 what is that Edith Wharton that he did? Uh, Age of Innocence. Sorry? Age of Innocence, yes. Uh, do you remember vaguely the story? Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, guy married with young bride, Vinona Ryder, I think, and then falls passionately in love with, with Michelle Pfeiffer, Incidentally, strange choice for me. I would much prefer Vinona Ryder than My personal madness, you know. But then uh, what happens is that, you remember, he thinks this is a secret, passionate affair. And then, you remember the scene at the end of the film when Vinona Ryder dies and he thinks, now, okay, I'm free finally to legally, openly go to my mistress, Michelle Pfeiffer, marry her. But then he meets in front of her house, his son, who tells him, don't you know, mother knew it all the time. She just pretended innocence. So you know, this innocence is not direct innocence. It's what we call politeness. You act as if you don't know. No? And uh, this ruins everything. The moment he knows that she knew, for him, all is ruined. You know, again, it's the same. He learned that the chicken knew it. No? That's the death of God. So for Lacan, you see the nice point. I like the implicit theology, which is ultimately what I was telling about Big Other. Big Other is God. God is not only, you know, the old guy who knows everything. God is also the ultimate innocence. The one who shouldn't know. You know, what if God I'm not talking about real God, I'm talking about how the idea of God functions in our symbolic enemy, is also, or at least at the same time, the one, this innocent gaze for which or for whom we should maintain innocence. You know, like you remember yesterday when I talked about Casablanca, no? God is the gaze for which we should pretend what happened, nothing. It was just two seconds and a half. And I think that this exactly is what happens in Christianity. How? Okay, allow me a little bit uh, to go on. Uh, another old story, maybe you know it already, but I like to repeat it. Uh, I think it all started with the book of Job. How do you call it? Hiob, Job. You know, the guy who got screwed up in all these holes by God. You know, Bible. Old Testament. Okay, I claim that this is one of the greatest texts of world culture. No wonder it's such an embarrassment that there is, okay, now church decided, and the Jewish establishment, this is part of the Bible, so you cannot change it. But I know from different theologies that that's their big temptation. To, I can guarantee you if some religious authority were to decide we were wrong, God gave us another chance to restructure Holy Bible, you know, to say, no, this text should go out, you made a mistake, this text should go in. I can guarantee you that the first one to be excluded would have been the book of Job, you know. And again, there are even tendencies. You know how among Jewish and among Christian theologists, like privately they admit to you, maybe, when did they establish the Bible? I think 3rd, 4th century, somewhere there. 
you know, we all know that the Bible is one big falsification in a totally contingent way through strategic considerations and so on. When was it, do you know, when was it established what is in and what in, about around 400, I think, no? That they made a mistake there. Why? It's not so much what you think. It's not so much this cynical idea, you know, as you already mentioned it, you know, God sitting at the table with, uh, with devil and, oh, let's test that sucker, Job, does he really believe in me or not? What's so wonderful there is what happens then, that's a subversiveness. You know what happens then? God's, uh, Job's life is screwed up, you know, he loses in this order, I like how it says in the Bible, his goats, his wives, his <laughs> horses, and so on. <laughs> I like this. But nonetheless, okay, he's in deep shit. Then what happens? This is really the first great piece of ideology, critique of ideology. Remember what happens then. Three stupid theological friends come, one after the other, precisely three ideologists. Each of them tries to console Job, but how? By, them, by trying to convince him, very precise point, that his suffering has a deeper meaning. You know, the first one says, I simplify very much, God is just, so if you suffered, it means even if you don't know what, you must have done something wrong. The second one says, I simplify, something like, uh, this is just, the divine plan to test you, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, and here we see Job's greatness. Job is not saying I am innocent. He just claims I don't accept the bullshit that this suffering has any deeper meaning. That's Job's point, no? And you know how important this is, even today? For example, when I was in Israel, I had a weird meeting, I, was, I met a couple of weird guys there. Now, my attack against you, the, the, no, no, you, you, the, the lesbian uh, revisionist. Do you know, I don't know the guy, but I met him, fuck you, I met him. Do you know that, you must know the story, they now even translated the book into French. You know that in IDF, Israel Defense Forces Military Academy, I'm not kidding. One of the basic reference books is Deleuze Mille Plateau. And uh, the guy, it's not a joke, they published it in France and in German. The guy uses this idea of triage, restructuring, of these different space strategies. Out of Deleuze, he elaborated the strategy how to fight Palestinians, you know. With direct application from Deleuze, they established this strategy of not entering through the door, but, you know, multi-space to break through the wall or whatever. So, sorry, I cannot resist bad jokes, sorry. Aren't you ashamed? You are solidary with Israeli militaries. <laughs> no, sorry, it's bad joke. I'm not saying that. You know what only made me bitter a little bit? First, I'm totally for Deleuze and so on. And incidentally, I met him once and I knew people who knew him. He was subjectively a little bit like but you, he was one of the most dignified, generous persons privately. You know how he died? He had some bullshit with lunch and he had to, and uh, he, uh, we uh, attached to a machine and he 
didn't want to arouse sympathy, you know. He simply, when he couldn't move around without all that machine, he stopped seeing people, just three, four closest friends. He said, it's too humiliating, I don't want to be that sentimental guy who, who how horrible. Isn't this a beautiful ethics? No? And then, when this became too much, he jumped uh, down from, I mean, he was an incredible uh, uh, ethical person. My bad guy here is Michel Foucault, if you ask me. I think this is the opposition. Because people think only about their big pact, you know, they, as it were, fell in love, not sexually, and uh, celebrate each other. But I, what people don't know, and uh, Deleuze did write about it, is how later they nonetheless split, move away from each other again. Okay, but that's another story. Uh, uh, what I want to say is that, sorry, you? Can I ask? Yeah, of course. Um, in, in what you are saying and uh, in, in relation to desire, yeah. Uh, that you have explained before now. Can you can you sort of make the parallel with uh, with in a way how Hezbollah functions in relation to the Israelis in, in the sense that it sort of embodies their desire to have somebody uh, that um, I don't know threatens them, scares them and so on. In the Up to a point, you know, in what sense? When I was in Ramallah, uh, I did, how is it called? I forget his name. Uh, who is the Palestinian Prime Minister now, that Harvard trained? Mahmoud Abbas. Sorry? Abbas. No, 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 Abbas is the boss, president. But the Prime Minister, Salam something. Okay, it doesn't matter. He's a very good technocrat and so on. But I support him. You know why? Because he's... An, I learned from my friends that Israelis are really afraid of him. Because instead of playing with stupid bombs and so on, you know what, what, what he's doing like crazy? He's silently building an efficient state apparatus. Like, my Palestinian friends were shocked when they told me, now you park a car in Ramallah, police is more strict than in, across the street in Jerusalem. You pay, or you have to pay tax, you know? And he's doing a wonderful job, and Israelis have this kind of envy and fear toward, because they know that what he is doing is, instead of bombs and so on, he's simply, he's doing precisely the opposite of what the Israelis are doing. The Israelis claim we want peace, but really they don't want peace. They want to, de facto, change things on the terrain as much as possible, so that at a certain point, the, all the talk about two states would become meaningless. Already now, it's very tragic, you know. Look at, and it's difficult to find it, here we have the Zionist lobby, sorry to use this term, but... Are, do, you know, like, we speak about West Bank and some Israeli settlements there. Fuck it, look at the exact plan. It's not that there is West Bank and some Israeli settlement. Palestinians <laughs> fully control around 20%, I think, a little bit more. Then you have one zone fully uh, for uh, settlements and another zone. So what I'm saying is that it's absolutely clear that Israelis are slowly, slowly trying to bring about the state where de facto they will control it. Now what, now what this guy, whatever he's doing, 
she's doing the opposite. Without big fuss, I know he's just a good bourgeois, capitalist, economist, but he's doing a nice job here. He's silently building the entire state apparatus, so that his major is exactly the opposite one. At a certain point, the world and Israel will simply notice, no, sorry, West Bank is no longer a couple of crazy Arafat ex-like terrorists, it's a modest but efficient modern state apparatus, you know. He's doing the right thing. And here I agree with you, if your point was how, of course they hate Hezbollah or Hamas, but this is much more the enemy they really want. And I will give you a proof. I learned this when I was in Israel. Uh, do you know, do you remember, how is that woman, I forgot her name, you must also have it, you, most of you know it, that pupil of, uh, of Edward Said, who was sometime, 20 years ago, a public face of Al-Fatah. Hanan Asrawi? Yeah, yeah. Did you notice how in the last 10, 15 years, she more or less disappeared. Yes, when 15, 20 years ago, you saw her all the time on CNN. Okay, what my Palestinian and Jewish friends told me, it's incredible, is how, you know how this happened? With a weird plot from fundamentalist Palestinian hardliners and Zionists. They both didn't like her. Uh, hardliners, of course not, who is this Western educated woman, blah, blah. But Zionists also, because for them, she gave a totally wrong impression. Like, they like some mumbling guy like Arafat who doesn't speak English. They say, hey, these are the real Palestinians. And all of a sudden, you have there an extremely articulated, you know. And so she was, the, this is why, precisely, there was a kind of a shared plot to squeeze her out. And she is now still around and so on, no but no longer, no, I'm very much involved in this, I just, no, I had a problem when I was there with this BDS or whatever, boycott, no? Mm, yes. I told them that in principle I support it, but I told them that unfortunately I come from Europe. And even if you put all these qualifications, you know, it's not Jews, it's just the state of Israel, you know, it brings too close in Europe the association of boycott the Jews, anti-Semitism, and so on. And I told them, unfortunately today in Europe, let's be frank, in Hungary, many other places, the old classic anti-Semitism is rising again. It's implicit. Ah, no, no, we have something, I'm not exaggerating. Didn't you notice, I read about it, my God, very important political development. I, this is why I think Brady, you know, our good friend from Norway, Brady. You know? <laughs> Do you know, he's very interesting ideological phenomenon. I hope you didn't, it's boring, but I had a Norwegian friend who did read his stupid manifesto. It's worse than Stalin or Hitler's like 500 pages. But it's interesting what you learn there. Brady was at the same time pro-Zionist, absolutely, no? He says, we should fully support the state of Israel, it's our, it's our first line of defense against the Arabs, uh, Muslim threat, blah, 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 all that. He even thinks they should, this is the big point, they should destroy that mosque, how is it called? Aqsa. 
yeah, yeah, and build there some of those stupid uh, Saul Paul temples or whatever, no? But now comes the surprise. At the same time, with regard to the West, he's anti-Semitic. We have, when I proposed this idea years ago, that the next stage will be pro-Zionist anti-Semitism. People told me, oh, it's some of your bad taste, deconstructionist jokes, whatever. No, it's not, my God. The guy says this, we should support them there, but here they are a danger. And he even in his manifesto has one page where he says, in Europe it's not so bad, the implication, because Hitler did his job. And, but he says, England is so-so, and the United States is a catastrophe, and they will have to face this problem, and so on and so on. Now let's go a step further. Now, okay, next counter reproach is, this is a unique guy there. <laughs> Do you know who is my favorite commentary, the best of American TV, bad joke? Do you know who is, or rather was, he was thrown out, Glenn Beck of Fox News? This, uh, he was the same, don't you know? He was fired by Fox, he had to be, because he is the same, absolutely pro-Zionist, visiting Israel, he, he simply immediately advocates this solution of throw the Palestinians out of the way, but at the same time within the United States, he was openly anti-Semitic. He was the one who did what no leftist, honest leftist did. He openly linked the uh, 2008 meltdown to a Jewish plot. It was a trick by Jewish bankers who, you know, and uh, I would generalize it. Uh, the thing which really worries me, and I'm all the time telling my Jewish friends this is, how come that the American fundamentalist right, these are people who, if I may put it so, it is in their nature to be anti-Semitic. If I may put it ironically in this naturalist, it, it has nothing to do with some Judith Butler cultural construction. It's simply in their genes nature. If there is one who will always, how come that, and this is only the last 15 years or so, you know, they were always a little bit also against Israel. Now, for the last 10, 15 years, they are the staunchest supporters of Zionist project. Of course, yeah. their justification, we know what it is. It's the stupid mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Because it says in that, uh, how do you call that, the very end of the Bible. Book of Revelation. Yeah. yeah, it says that before Messiah, blah, 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 before the end of the day, Jews will return. Yeah. They see this as part of, no? Yeah. Yeah. But it's more, it's very obscure. Sorry, but you wanted to. On, on your point of Hezbollah, I think, if I'm correct, what you were asking was if you could fit it into a Lacanian conception of the empty signifier, like the Jew filled for the German, yeah? Does Israel have the same function for Hezbollah? Is it commensurate on the other side? Is that something? Yeah, yeah, more or less. You know what I mean? But I know it's not as simple, you can't. No, I also, you know why not? Yeah, I agree with you in this sense, because, you know, I either, I nonetheless don't think that in the same way the entire Zionist project is linked to, to some anti-Semitic fundamentalism. First, you know, let's make it clear. Uh, you know that here even Gaddafi was right when he claimed that, you know that Arab hatred of Jews is a relatively recent phenomenon. It's only when, after in the early 20th century, when before 
the relations, the relations were very, very good. And this lasted almost till 30s and so on. It was often incredible solidarity. So I think that if you are looking for the other of Zionist project, it's more, I don't know, a certain type of Western anti-Semitism and so on. I don't think Arabs are constitutive of it. But the way where I agree with you is that uh, for strategic opportunistic reasons, again, Hezbollah or Hamas are the ideal opponent. That's the opponent they need to pursue their task. And it's even literally true. I was so shocked, you know, you should be evil and read the news. You learn many things in news which, you know, you just get a small note here, there, and it doesn't explode into big news. If you are just attentive, you read it in a Freudian way, you know, as Freud says to interpret it with this floating attention. Just, and like three, four years ago, when Hamas already was, uh, I think, was it? It wasn't some Arab, but it was precisely one of the big Western media, New York Times or what, who published this. And when I was in Israel, I asked some official guys there, they confirmed this to me. Pragmatically, they said we had to do it. Do you know that till 10 years ago, Israel was supporting Hamas? Yes, actually there's a myth that, uh, that in the 80s, Hamas yes. was uh, being created by Mossad. Yeah, you know why? Because the idea was a very simple one. Uh, divide and rule. Divide, no? yeah, exactly. For them, they wanted to divide the enemies and to prevent the, the hegemony of, mm -hmm. of Al-Fatah and so on and so on. And there are many others here. Maybe now it's really real hatred with Iran. But do you know that two years ago, did you notice know there was some mystical item that a ship was caught, intercepted in international water, carrying Israeli arms to Iran and so on. I mean, fuck it, who, you know, things are here so obscure that who knows, who knows. It's the same, my God, but that's the paradox of the entire axis of evil, you know, like, name me one member of the axis of evil, with the exception of the greatest, North Korea, okay, that's another <laughs> point, who was not at some point either American agent or working for CIA or whatever, no? Saddam, absolutely, be serious. When Saddam did this totally opportunistic thing, the greatest crime, attacking Iran. And it was absolutely clear. His calculation was there is chaos there, let's grab that part of oil close to the sea. No one dared directly to condemn him. Not only this, Americans were, as we know now, they admitted, even supplying him with satellite images of Iranian groups and silently agreeing with the use of poisonous gas. Americans only protested seriously, more or less, when Saddam used the gas against Kurdish rebels. But against Iranian Muhammad, they said, oh, they are crazy fanatics, the only way to stop them, and so on and so on. We know the story about the great guy himself, uh, Osama bin Laden, you know, my God. He was directly in contact with CIA fighting the Soviets, and that's, for me, the great tragedy, as I always emphasize, of the Middle East. It's the disappearance of the secular left, where the West is not innocent. You know, the West made this fatal misjudgment in the era of Cold War, uh, thinking that 
fund religious fundamentalism is negligible, the real threat is Soviet influence, secular left, ah, ah, now we are all uh, paying the price. But sorry, let's nonetheless, my God, we are getting close. Let's nonetheless... Uh, Can you, you were yeah. going to say something about Deleuze right before... Yeah, no, no, but Deleuze, I know, we started with Deleuze and with that madness of uh, accusing you to be the... No, no, I know, sorry. No, no, what I wanted uh, to say, we were... Talking, how did I come to the list? Do you remember? Uh, IDF, the IDF, the teacher. Yeah, but, but, but coming before. to that before. You were in Israel, you were talking to friends. Before. No, we were Suture. talking about the Suture, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Incidentally, again, if you want the best introduction into Suture, uh, you know that Deleuze wrote an excellent text in the mid-late 60s, which was part of a volume, Keskel Structuralism, what is Structuralism? I know it's Tensei, but I don't know where. The title is Qui Reconnect on le Structuralism, whom does what recognize as a structuralist, which is for me maybe the best introduction to structuralist notion of suture difference and so on and so on. That's, and uh, there are other mis... Okay. Let's not lose time, I got into crazy. What I wanted to say here, to be, uh, uh, yes, we were at that level of, yes, how object A, sorry, I will make a jump now to tell you something. Uh, 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 to tell you, uh, uh, yes, I know where we were. We were at this objective belief, objectified belief, fetishism, slaves seduce me into their <laughs> sinful ways. <laughs> sorry, what I wanted to say is the following thing, that, uh, about this objectified belief and so on then. How difficult to say, yes, I remember yesterday or the day before, I didn't finish the story, don't believe me, don't be afraid, it's a very short one, when I mentioned to you that I spoke with an Israeli psychiatrist, you remember, dealing with suicide terrorists, and that the image he got, I, I think I didn't finish it, it's very interesting, is that, no, his impression is, they do not really believe in it, in the sense of, yes, I, uh, you know, I remember where I lost track there, when I went into those <laughs> graves, which is not really oh, yeah. 70 virgins, but graves, <laughs> you know, and I like, Palestinians are, my God, they are so similar to Jews, they have wonderful sense of humor and so on, and they told me, you know what is one of the big jokes about them, that playing on this mistranslation, 70 virgins, in the reality, 70 those top quality raisins that there was a young frustrated Palestinian boy who couldn't get girls so he said fuck it I believe in Quran let me become a terrorist I explode and then at least I will get the virgins up there no so okay he does it kills himself gets up and then is shocked to learn he gets 70 raisins and then he complains to God sorry it was a mistake I thought like can I go back? No, I wanted girls, not raisins. No, they are quite nice. They know how to make fun. Palestinians are... And they gave me a wonderful lesson of racism masked as multicultural, uh, as multicultural uh, respect. There was that wonderful group from Israel and my good friend Udi Aloni organized a visit of them to, to, uh, to New York Janine Freedom Theater, you know that guy Giuliano who was killed and so on. But what's so interesting is that I saw the group in <coughs> New York and we 
went into this wonderful obscene competition between Palestinians and Jews there, like, okay, I was none of them, I was the judge above, who will tell a nasty joke? And my Jewish friends told me a wonderful Jewish mythology joke. Do you know why? It's a, maybe you heard it, but I like it so much. That's Jewish humor at its best. Do you know why, after uh, the Jews in exile, Exodus, crossed the Red Sea, do you know why, before settling in, whatever it is there, Zion, Palestina today, they had to wander around for 40 years, I think. Do you know why? What's their answer? Because God hated them and wanted to be sure and was making geological investigations for 40 years, wanted to be sure that there will be no oil there. <laughs> there the Jews will settle. Now there's natural gas in the sea. Sorry? Now there's natural gas in the sea. I know that's the problem, but this, well, I read so, somewhere yeah. that this yeah. gas now and the gas that they will make from some technical, isn't the idea that this will change everything now? No. Okay, but nonetheless, uh, right. let's go back. So yes, that guy told me, terrorist, uh, sorry, uh, that, no, the typical structure is that for a suicidal bomber, you don't explode yourself because you believe. It's a kind of a... Uh, ultra hysterical passage al act, you doubt if you really believe or not. And it's a desperate wager if I kill myself, I will prove that I believe. You know, it's a desperate attempt to escape into a brutal act to, 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 to resolve precisely your doubt, your lack of belief. So, again, consistently enough, sorry, there's a movie called Paradise Now which. Actually, illustrates I this. It's yeah. about a religious person. I know, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. And then Sorry? You've seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. this is the last And I relatively one. like it because there are many movies like that which are too politically correct, authentic, fuck it. No, I don't like it. But this one is quite watch watchable. No? Okay, let's go on. Nonetheless, let me come back because, fuck it, I didn't talk too much, but at least I, wa at least I want to. Uh, keep my promise of saying something about melancholy and so on, you know, because it is linked with all this. What is melancholy here? Okay, uh, now first to conclude with you. So my idea, yes, we were with Job. Yes, oh my gosh, and that is crazy. Uh, my, uh, what happens, but things get even more, okay, we, get, we got the three ideologists. And what I, and now I remember, now I have the line in my head, yes. What I wanted to tell you is that when I was in Israel, I met a leader of a sect through my friends, and it's really tragic. He advocates, and he has some partisans, a couple of 10,000, the opinion that Holocaust was deserved as a divine punishment because Jews were not faith. But you know why I find this so tragic, because it's clear that it's so difficult to accept the meaninglessness, just we were killed, no, that even if it's a terrifying meaning, God pun, you know, even terrifying meaning, it's better than no meaning. This is where I see the horror. This is why I understand disgusting jerks like uh, Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. You remember what was their reaction to September to 9-11. It was a big scandal. Basically, 
basically the, the most radical Al-Qaeda line. They claimed that September 11 was divine punishment of the United States because of their sinful ways and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that the meaninglessness of it is difficult to accept. And the greatness of Job is that he insists on it. It doesn't have any meaning, the catastrophe. And now comes the miracle, why the book of Job is a great book. You know what happens then when uh, finally God comes and says something wonderful. He says all that the three bullshitters, theologists, were saying is shit, every word of Job is correct. Like God takes the side against theologists of precisely the guy who resisted him, who refused to admit that it has a meaning, a deeper meaning. Then, we go a step forward, now things come re get really interesting. Because then we have the last stage, where nonetheless Job insists, you know, like, okay, I'm putting it in my poetic terms, like, <laughs> fuck you, but if it has no meaning, blah, blah, why did you do it, you know, like, why did I suffer so much? And then comes the mysterious part. You know, God explodes, you remember it, into that big speech of where were you when I created stars, where were you when this, that, all the freaks, miracles, the problem is how to read this, no? Like uh, the standard reading is the reading uh, of just uh, that the message is God's mind is out of our reach, God moves at a totally different level, we just have to trust God, it's a blasphemy of trying to understand God, no? That's the standard reading. There are other subdivisions, but basically, but again, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, I have this in one of my books, I know my beloved theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, offers an ingenious opposite reading, which is that God's answer is really when he paints to Job, all these freaks of nature, no? That basically the logic of his answer is, you really think you are in deep shit, but look at the universe, it's deep shit all around, you know, like, I didn't just screw your life, I screwed everything, you know. In other words, that we have here, as uh, Chesterton put it, the moment where God himself engages in blasphemy. And in very nice terms, he says, only in Christianity, okay, but it's not even Christianity, it's Old Testament. Okay, and then, uh, I think I already mentioned this to you, but it belongs here, even today, so go three to this line. Then there is a Norwegian theologist, yes, I mentioned it, Zapfe, Z-A-P-F-F-E, a friend from Norway, who has an even more radical reading that... Job waits for God, accepting some, sorry, expecting some magnificent justice, but that what Job experiences is that God, the real God, is, you know this horrible idea, you find it in some fairy tales or science fiction stories, of a guy who is omnipotent, but his mind is that of an e evil child, petty, omnipotent evil monster, that... God is that. He is omnipotent, 
but he is, as this theologist Norwegian Zapfe put it, but he is a kind of a primitive caveman, just beating with his stick with not e even a minimal moral standard. You know that the trauma of Job, with which is finishes, okay, but... So, so what you're saying is that God is ultimately omnipotent, but also impotent within the same moment. Yeah, yeah. And this is not even very original, not only Gnosticism, but uh, 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 even in Schelling you find this already, you know, this idea of divine limitation and so on. But now let me go a step further to conclude this line, nonetheless. Uh, uh, I think that we should make even a step further here. The lesson of Book of Job, and I think it's crucial to read Jesus Christ as next step in this line. The message of Book of Job is that God is that, our usual idea of God, even if it's not material God, is that, to put it very bluntly, our life may appear to be a mess, but don't worry, there is some higher force, structure, meaning, which nonetheless will guarantee that everything serves a purpose. You know, this is what usually is called cunning of reason, or this is, for me, one of the most disgusting images of, uh, 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 sorry, uh, strategies to ask, explain how evil can be in the world where we have good omnipotent God. You know this parallel of a painting. The idea is in the same way as when you look at the painting, what I'm thinking, we have this joke book there. <laughs> okay, then. You know, a painting. If you look at the painting too close, you see just a blurred stain. But you, if you step back a little bit, you see how what you misperceive as a stain contributes to global harmony. So the idea is that this exactly is the status of evil. It appears evil to us because our perspective is too narrow. But from a divine perspective, it contributes to global harmony. And then you can, okay, it doesn't matter how you do it empirically. The point is just that you have this trust that however confused things are, from a higher global perspective, even if it's inaccessible to us, things have a meaning. There is some agency, personal God, destiny, uh, reason of the world, which somehow runs the show and gives small pushes to direct it in the good sense. I claim that what Job experiences is precisely the death of this God. And I claim that, and that's also Chesterton's wonderful reading, that what dies on the cross is precisely this God. God who up there guarantees that, and this is a very actual God, I think, because, uh, like, you know, like, are you ready to say Holocaust, Gulag, Congo, oh, these are just uh, evil events for us because of our narrow perspective, but from a higher perspective, uh, Holocaust contributed to world harmony or whatever. Although there are people who claim Holocaust was part of the divine plan, because, which is true, without Holocaust probably no state of Israel, you know. So there are madmen who go. But nonetheless, what I want to say is that 
what dies on the cross is precisely the becader. The death of Christ means there is no higher order, ideal, real, existing, non-existing, which guarantees the outcome. We are alone with our freedom. Which is why I do agree that Christianity is the religion of freedom. Because, to put it in the terms of the joke, the chicken dies there. Or, you know what is for me the elementary syllogism of Christianity? Let's say you become a Christian to be free and so on, and then you feel abandoned by God. There is no God to help you, it's alone and so on. You know what is the true Christian answer? 